Healthy Bible Church. How, how is everybody? Everybody get enough sleep finally last night? Get the clocks changed? I got the clock changed on my coffee maker, but not on the one on my nightstand. Figure that one out. Um, <laughs> but woke up this morning and went, oh man, I got to hustle and get, <laughs> get going. And uh, then went out and realized, no, no, I still have another hour to sit and drink coffee, which I did and enjoyed. Uh, I am Pastor Joe. I'm one of the one of the guys on staff here. Um, if you're visiting with us here this morning, we would love to connect with you and help you find a home here. Uh, so see me after the service or see Pastor Jim. Uh, we'd love to help you find your fit uh, into the church family here uh, because we are a family and we will love on you and welcome you in. And, uh, and help you with whatever needs that you have. So if you're visiting with us, uh, please, uh, I hope you feel welcome and uh, warmly received by everybody. And if, you're, uh, if you haven't been, see me about that, and we'll, talk, we'll, we'll figure out how to deal with that too. Um, the last uh, few weeks here, we have been looking at marriage from a biblical perspective, and we've looked at what God has to say about what a marriage is supposed to be. And we've looked at the issue of sin and how that has an impact on marriage. And then we've looked at what I would call the hot-button issues or the, the major sources of difficulty within our marriages because we're both fallen people who live in a fallen world and our marriages are therefore affected by our sinfulness. And so we've looked at romance and intimacy uh, those of you who were here with Bill Allison got that two weeks ago. We've looked at conflict and communication. We've looked at, um, let's see, what else have we looked at? We've looked at uh, marriage roles. We've considered all these things. Here this morning, we're going to look at one more really biggie. We're going to look at the issue of money. If you um, you identify all the things that people fight about, uh, the, those are kind of the biggies. Uh, miscommunication uh, and learning how to resolve conflict and make peace appropriately. Uh, romance and intimacy becomes a big issue that people fight about. Uh, people fight about their marriage roles and who is supposed to do what and what what place each person is supposed to have within the relationship. And then they also find about money. And people have different perspectives on, on the role of money and what they should do with it and all of those kinds of things. And actually, the Bible has more to say about money than virtually any other topic except salvation. Right after that is money. And, one, and that may shock you to find that out. But one of the reasons is this, is that it, the Scripture talks about it so often because, as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or, or I have said it this way in the past and continue to think this, that if you give me access to your daytimer, or if you're a little more up to date, your Blackberry uh, and your checkbook or your debit card list, um, as the case might be, if you give me access to your finances and your whatever you're using to keep track of your schedule, then I know within five minutes 
what it is that you think is important. Because how you spend your time and your money reveals your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we want to make sure as followers of Jesus Christ that our hearts are in the right place. And I don't mean in the way that you sometimes hear people described. You know, like if you're in the South, you can say anything nasty you want to say about a person whatsoever, as long as you say at the end, bless his heart. <laughs> okay. Or we will say sometimes up north, we say critical things about one another, and we'll say, but he has a good heart. <laughs> okay. But now I want to actually ensure that our hearts, with reference to our money, are actually in a biblical spot. And so I want to spend some time just summarizing, because again, this is a huge area of teaching within the Scriptures. And I want to just summarize over the next uh, few minutes what the Bible has to say about this issue of money. I'm going to give you seven biblical principles related to your money. And the first one is this that God is the source of all of your material resources. Whether it's you're talking about your money, your possessions, God is the source of everything. Uh, God is the one who gives us the resources we have. Deuteronomy 8.17 to 18a says it this way, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to produce wealth. In other words, nothing that we have got came from our own effort in our own hands. We may have worked for it. We may have been the person who got a job. But remember, who is the person who gave you the talents and gifts and abilities that you have? God is the person who gave you those things. And so ultimately, whatever we've got is a gift from God. Uh, the ability to make wealth, the ability to work, the, ability, the fact that you are healthy enough to continue working, all of these things are gifts from God, and they come to us from His hand. And so... And I think in a way, because everything we have is a gift, that implies something also about our relative status uh, with one another. Sometimes we get to comparing, you know, job to job and income to income, and we think, well, I have a job doing X, and you have a job doing Y, and I am really blessed by God. You know, and we get kind of arrogant about, you know, something which comes to us as a gift, remember? And in our society, we don't necessarily have uh, the same value attached to every occupation. And so some of us have gifts and talents which qualify us to be auto mechanics. For me, a car is a black box. I know where the gas and the oil is. But apart from that, I... I'm a victim every time I go to the, to, the, to the repair shop, fix it, here's my money. You know, um, other people understand how those things work. I do not. There are other people who have gifts and talents that qualify them to be nurses. 
Other people have gifts and talents that qualify them to be financial advisors. Other people have gifts that qualify them to be carpenters. And some to be engineers. And some to be accountants. And some to be brain surgeons. And some to be rocket scientists. I went to church with a guy at one point who actually was a rocket scientist. Worked for NASA. He's a lot smarter than me. <laughs> I felt like an intellectual dwarf in his presence. Because uh, Mike is just a smart guy. Uh, and all of us have different talents. And all of those are compensated at different levels, right? Auto mechanic... Brain surgeon, not the same compensation level. Pastor, rocket scientist, not compensated at the same level. It's a different kind of thing. But you know what? I don't have to feel self-conscious over what my gifts and talents bring from an economic perspective. Why not? Because it's God who gave to each person the gifts and talents that they have. And the responsibility that we have is not necessarily to spend a lot of time wishing that we had a different set or that ours were compensated better, but to utilize the gifts that we have to the fullest extent that we can to honor God with what we do. Because God ultimately is the source of all that we have. Not just our possessions, not just our money, not just our place that we live, but even the talents and gifts that we have that enable us to do those things come from God. And God is concerned, since He is the one who gave us these things, that we honor Him with them. And so the first thing that we need to remember is that God is the source of all these things. Uh, Second one, give generously. And this is a principle that is shot through the Bible, both Old and New Testament. One of the central ideas connected to giving is the idea that when we give, um, we are not only honoring God, and, and giving is a form of worship, because we are saying to God, I'm offering you a portion of the most valuable things that I have because you and my relationship with you is the most valuable thing I possess. Part of it is what we're, part of what we're saying when we give is we're ascribing a value and a worth to God. In fact, the word worship in English comes from the old English that means worthship is the original word. And it's the idea of ascribing worth and value to God. And giving is a form of that. If you're not giving, you're in sin. I'm serious. That's not a joke. If you don't give and honor the Lord, you're in violation of what the Scripture clearly says, both Old and New Testament. You need to honor the Lord. And also, it's a way, at when we give, of reminding ourselves of the first principle I gave you, that, that God is the source of everything we have. And it keeps us from being arrogant and proud and thinking to ourselves, well, I have done all of this by myself. I did it. I carved it out. I 
uh, set myself up. I carved my own pathway. I climbed my own ladder. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. No, you didn't. God provided all that you have, even the talents you have. And so when we give, we honor the Lord with a portion of our wealth, and we remind ourselves that God is the one who gave us these things. Um, And on top of that, God often chooses to bless people who are generous with the resources that he gives them. Here's Proverbs chapter uh, 3, verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats brim with new wine. Now, this is from Proverbs. This is not a promise. It's a statement of wise principle that if you give, God often chooses to bless you far above what you have given. And that's not necessarily materially bless, although it often is a material blessing that you receive as you give and as you trust the Lord. Uh, in Israel, the nation had laws about what percentage of your giving you had to do. It was one-tenth of everything you took in, plus your first fruits, plus all the animals that you had to offer as sacrifice. They were very specific about it. In the New Testament, it's not nearly that specific. In fact, the closest thing to a statement of a rule that we can come is from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, where it says, each person should give according to what he has decided in his heart to give, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, the idea is this isn't an obligation or a burden. It's something we do freely in celebration of our relationship with God. And we honor the Lord with it. Now, let me just say as a personal aside to this, that Karen and I have, from the very earliest days of our marriage, whenever we had money come in, and some years it was a lot, and some years it was substantially less, we had a commitment that we were going to honor the Lord with a portion of what came in, whatever it was. And from went from the days when we were living in an apartment that if you had a 25-foot phone cord, you could talk in every room of it. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, to the days now when we live in a, a five-bedroom house. We've, just, we've made a commitment to honor the Lord with what we have. And the Bible's principle also is that you honor the Lord off the top with the first fruits of what comes in, not with what is left at the end of the month. Because if you're like me, we always have too much month left at the end of our money, right? (laughs) Um, And so you honor the Lord first, and then the rest spend to meet your needs. Eat Rocky Road if you want, okay? Um, Buy new clothes, what have you. But you honor the Lord first. And I know, by the way, that times are pretty tough right now for a lot of people. There's a lot of people who have been out of work. Maybe you are still out of work, and I understand. But when you have money coming in, 
whatever it is, you honor the Lord with a portion of it. Uh, because the fact is, is that while there have been a lot of times when you can't, there may be a lot of times in your life when it feels like I can't afford to give right now, what you also can't afford is to be disobedient to God and something he's spoken clearly about. You know, when Karen and I, our seminary years, we were not prosperous all that much. And most of that was because over three and a half years, we spent $40,000 on school. And God was faithful. Uh, He honored that. And we never went hungry. In fact, we actually got to eat at some nice restaurants in the process. And we graduated from school without owing the seminary a single dime. I don't know how that happened. But during those years, we continued the habit that we had always had of we're going to, we're going to give off the top to the Lord of whatever comes in. And he watched out for us and watched over us. And he has always done so. And he'll do so for you too. Uh, you know, God's, God's will done God's way never lacks God's supply. He always comes through. Um, third one, third principle here. Save prudently. The Bible has a lot to say about the wisdom of saving some of your money. It is good to have a rainy day fund because you live in a fallen world and rainy days come. Amen? We are in some right now as a society. In fact, we might be in a hailstorm. Rainy days come, and it's good to have something set aside. It's good to have some slack in the rope where you're not living completely paycheck to paycheck. Proverbs 21.20 says it this way, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but the foolish man devours everything he has. A wise man does not spend every dollar he gets. He sets some aside for the, for the day when the rainstorm comes so that you are not destitute. Um, now, I'll say this also about Karen and I. Between the orthodontist, the tax man, and the doctor, we spend a lot of money every year. And we don't have gigantic leftover amounts of money that go into savings. You know, we don't have this, like, fantastic 401k program out there somewhere that's just waiting for the day when we are uh, able to retire and go live in Tahiti. That's not going to happen, <laughs> okay? I'm waiting for my eternal retirement. But nevertheless, it's good to have some money set aside. And if it's, if it's a dollar a week, then God bless it, you know? It's a dollar a week. But to have something set aside for, um, for a rainy day is a biblically wise thing. So save prudently. Fourth one, avoid debt. Avoid debt. The Bible never says that it's wrong in all circumstances for Christians to borrow money. 
every now and then you'll hear some, somebody on the radio or wherever who will try to make that case to you. The Bible does not say that. The Bible does not say it is wrong to borrow money. There are some things that it is probably wise to borrow money on. At the same time, the Bible does say this, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. Any of you who have ever borrowed money from anybody understand exactly what that last part of the verse means, that you are the slave to whoever you borrowed it from. You can't quit your job. Why? Because the car payment has still got to get made. If I quit my job, SefQ comes and takes my house. Right? You can't, you can't do that. You're, why? You're a slave in a certain sense to whoever you borrow the money from. That's why when you get to the end of your 15 or 20 or 30 or 40, whatever years it is that you pay off your mortgage, you burn that thing. Why? Because it's the day you got released from bondage. It's your emancipation proclamation. <laughs> you throw off the chains of all that debt that you have paid. When you, we, we owe the, the bank on the house and we owe Chrysler on the van. And when the, the day comes when that last van payment is made... Uh, I don't know if I'll be capable of this, but I will at least attempt handsprings in the backyard. Why? Because it, there's a tremendous freedom of being out from under the burden of debt. Debt is a load to carry. And if you get yourself into it, it is a long time to get yourself out of it. And it's hard. And that is true whenever we borrow money. You have, ob you have made a decision which has obligated you for future days. You've made promises that you have to live up to, but which aren't much fun to keep. And borrowing with no intention of repaying, by the way, is sin. Psalm 37.21 says, The wicked borrow, but do not repay. And one of the biggest contributors to our country's current financial mess is a whole bunch of people who borrowed money they, e they either could not or had no intention of ever paying back. And there were literally millions of people who bought houses they could not afford with money that wasn't theirs. And then when you got enough of these people together in a pot and sold bonds and so forth, between financial institutions based on people who not only did not have the money, but were never going to have the money to repay that debt, a whole bunch of banks nearly went down the flusher on bad loans to people who borrowed what they couldn't pay. And that is wrong to do that. And our country as a whole is experiencing the cost of that. And, of course, it wasn't confined to just this country. It went all over the world, people doing that. But it's not simply a financial issue. It's a moral issue of what happened and that we're paying the consequences for. And so according to the Bible, you should avoid debt whenever possible. Now, there are some things it's worth borrowing money for. 
And generally speaking, if I, you know, the Bible doesn't specifically say this, but I'll give you some wise counsel that I got years ago from a Christian uh, finance guy that I uh, knew when I was in college. He said, generally speaking, if you are going to borrow money, make sure it's, it's you're borrowing money for something that goes up in value when you're uh, going to be buying it. So your house, it's okay to borrow money for that. It's going to be an appreciating asset, generally speaking. Certainly, if you hold it long enough, it rises in value. A new sports car, mm, that's a depreciating asset. The value goes down as soon as you sign the papers from the dealership. You lose about, I think it's about six grand because it's not new as soon as you drive it. Avoid debt whenever possible. Obviously, there are certain circumstances where you've got to have some money to pay a bill that you don't have. You're going to have to get it from somewhere. But avoid debt whenever you can. By the way, just as an aside, if you're in a financial bind, can't pay the rent this month, etc., come see us. We have a deacon board uh, full of very compassionate men and women who would love to help you solve financial problems. Please come see us. This is Rick Rosetto right here. Rick, shoot your hand up. All right. Rick is the chairman of our deacon board. If you're in a financial pinch, come see him, and he'll connect you with our, our deacon ministry that, will, that assists with those things to the extent we can. Uh, number five, work hard. The Bible places an enormous value on people who work hard, and it reviles and curses lazy people. There should never be a Christian lazy person. That is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction in terms. You cannot be a Christian and be lazy. You cannot be, as Proverbs Proverbs term is a sluggard. You can't do that and follow Jesus. Work hard. Uh, Hard work is described in Ecclesiastes as a source of joy, and it really can be. When you get to the end of a long day of a project, something you've gotten done and you look back, there's there's a joy and a satisfaction that comes in hard work done well. You can look back, I built that fence, I wrote that policy, I did that surgery, I fixed that car, I did whatever, I raised those children. That's a job too, by the way. Work hard. Uh, God made us to honor him with our work, and when we do good work, God is honored. Uh, Laziness is a moral failing. It's not just a personal quirk. It's not an idiosyncrasy. It's not uh, part of your personality and your individual uniqueness. It's a moral failing. That's why Paul says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. 
Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. That's 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He also says in 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for those of his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's a moral issue. It's an issue of Christian discipleship, of following Jesus. If you're a lazy person, you're out of God's will. There are some men out there who don't want to work. They don't really want to have jobs. They, have, they just kind of float from job to job. And they, because they don't work. And that is sin. And when a Christian acts like that, according to 1 Timothy, it is worse than an unbeliever because an unbeliever most times will work hard and feed their family. And so for a Christian man to not do that is to behave worse than an unbeliever. Someone who doesn't even know Jesus will do better than that. Uh, one final word on this, and I'll stop beating this horse. Proverbs twenty-eight nineteen: He who works his land will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. I don't know if you've ever met somebody like this. I had a friend when I was in college, graduated, got married, had a couple of kids, and he was always waiting for his ship to come in. He always had some scheme, some get-rich-quick idea that if I would just get in on with him on the ground floor, I mean, we would make a lot of money. And somehow, the longer I knew this fellow, the more impoverished his family and he became. And finally, it was one of these, look, dude, if you would go work at McDonald's, 40 hours a week, you'd be doing better than you are selling Amway or whatever the you know, scheme du jour was. Work your land. If you're a farmer, this is the agricultural society that, he's, that Proverbs is writing to. If you work hard, you'll have your needs provided for. But if you've always got some scheme, you're going to be hungry a lot. <laughs> Not to say that you can't be an entrepreneur and start a new business, but that requires more hard work than working for somebody else, not less. Uh, number six, flee from greed. Now, when I was in seminary, I, I went to Dallas Seminary uh, in 1998, January. It was a good time to move from the Midwest. Uh, January is a good time of the year to move. We left, it was 20 below zero in Indiana, and we moved in uh, in flip-flops and shorts in 65 degrees. It was fantastic. And we, uh, we moved, uh, moved in, and then I went to class starting the, just a few days later. And the start of class was Spiritual Life Week, and we had Pastor Tommy Nelson out of Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas, who was there give, delivering the messages. And he gave us one of his messages had to do with 1 Timothy chapter 6 uh, that says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And he read that passage, and we all kind of sat there and went, huh. And he says, I know a lot of you guys are sitting out there, and you're looking at me, and you're saying, Tommy, why are you preaching on this? We haven't got any money to love. (laughs) And that was true, Uh, especially for a, a lot of us, it was true. And he said, it's because of this, gentlemen. He says, a lot of you are smart and talented, and a lot of you come from well-off family backgrounds. He says, and you'll get out into ministry, and if you're not careful, you'll start to focus on all of the other ways that you could be out there having a job, making more money than what you're going to be making in ministry. And he says, and what you're going to be tempted to do is to sell your calling from God into the ministry for a paycheck doing something else. He says, I have seen a lot of guys I graduated with that punted the pastorate for the sake of being a financial planner or a pharmaceutical salesman or an executive or whatever. And he says it wasn't because their calling got any less clear. It was because their heart got greedy. And a lot of them aren't even involved in ministry anymore at their church because they don't have a church that they even any longer attend. And I'm not saying that simply as a warning to people who are in ministry, but I'm saying that as a warning to all of us. If if it can happen to pastors, and I have seen it happen to some of the most spiritual men that I've known, it can happen to all of us. That we can be lured by money into compromising our faith and ultimately walking away from Jesus. And it starts like this. We go to the job, and because of the job that we have, it makes certain demands on our time, and then we get maybe a little bit less regular in our participation in the community of God's people. And then, and so we've compromised on that, and then we compromise a little more on, we get a little morally flexible on the way we make a deal. And then we get a little more morally flexible on how things, how we talk and how we act and how we operate because, well, you know, in the business world, this is just how this is done. And what we're doing is we start to create a dichotomy between our life at church to the extent that we still go and our life Monday through Friday at work. And the wider that gap is, the more danger we are in of walking away totally from the faith, and as Paul says, piercing ourselves with many griefs. And greed is idolatry. It is setting up money as a god to serve and worship. 
And as Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. Money is a good servant. It is a horrible master. And it can separate you from your relationship with God. Last principle, be content. There is something within each of us that seems to have trouble knowing when to say when. And I think as Americans, we are part of the original supersized, coast-to-coast, 24-7, 365 nation. And we all culturally tend to think if a little is good, a lot is better, and too much is just right. Right? If you don't believe me, witness the suburban. All right? (laughs) We have to have one of these, right? How many children do you have? Three. Why do you have a vehicle that seats nine people and has like eight feet of space behind the seat? It's cool. I want one, right? Um, it's the closest thing we have to a bus as, public tra- as a private transportation, right? Now, I learned to drive with one. I thought it was great. But we tend to think that way. And, and even, you know, famously, John D. Rockefeller, the founder of Standard Oil, was asked at a, at a time when he had a personal fortune in the 1920s, just imagine this kind of wealth today. Because this is back when your money was really worth something. Had a personal fortune of $500 million. And they asked him, John, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Now, in today's terms, he would be wealthier than Bill Gates. Because remember, in 1920, a loaf of bread was about a, was about a nickel. $500 million, a little bit more than I've got. A lot of us have trouble being content. And so we want not just clothes, but nicer clothes. Not just a car, but a nicer car. Not just a house, but a nicer house. Not just a car, but two cars, or three, or four, or a car lot full. Maybe you live next to those people, right? Or you've been tempted to put up flags down their driveway, Uh, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But uh, a lot of us think, well, I, you know, I make forty thousand. I'd be, I'd be really happy at sixty thousand. And then we make 60. Well, you know, 80 would be awesome. Or 90 or 100. Or 30 would be fantastic because I'd be in tall cotton then. And then I'd be content. But the fact is, if you're not content where you are, you won't be when you're there. A whole lot of us have two cars per family. A whole lot of us have a diet that would shock most people who have ever lived on this planet. And yet a lot of us struggle with contentment. Because we get to comparing what I have versus what you have versus what you have versus whatever. And we don't compare ourselves to a villager in Sudan, compare ourselves with other people we know or other people that we do not know but would really like to be. 
and the act of comparison kills our contentment. Hebrews 13.5 says this, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In other words, if you take that Hebrews verse and break it down, the best way to find contentment is simply to remember this, that God is always with us. Now, you may think, well, big deal. So God is always with me. Here's the reality. And the Bible talks about this a lot. You know how long it takes a fortune to disappear? That long. Ask somebody who had their 401k that they thought was going to be the source of enormous retirement security. How they're doing now. When it's a 101k. Ask somebody who had lots of money invested in stocks and saw the value of what they had dropped by over 50% in one day. And then had a margin call from their broker. How that felt. Or somebody who lost their company. Or somebody who lost their health and then lost everything that they had paying the doctor. What's really important? What's really important is not how much money I've got in the bank, what kind of clothes I am wearing, what kind of house I live in, where that house is located, or whether it's an apartment. What's really important at the end of the day is that God is with us. And God has promised never to leave us, never to forsake us, and He is completely trustworthy. He is as good as His Word, and His Word is rock solid. And the important thing is not our money, not our stuff, not our possessions, but our relationship with God who loves us. And who encourages us to be content because we can trust Him. Let's pray.